According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me this morning, if you would, in John chapter 11. I'm starting to think we have more people in the side room. <laughs> I may go over there and teach from over there. No, I'm teasing. And we have our sisters back this morning, too. That was real nice. We had three pairs of sisters here last week, and I thought about that when I was driving home, and appreciate that. Wish I could get my sister here sometime. That'd be a lot of fun. All right. John chapter 11. We have spent several weeks dealing with the resurrection of Lazarus, and uh, when we left off last week, uh, Lazarus was not dead anymore. He was back to physical life, and we're ready now to move on. The next episode is really just a continuation of episode 26. Um, but there's enough that's separate from it, and I understand why they gave it its own event number in the uh, the Harmony of the Gospels that we're adapting, uh, because there's, there is content here that we want to be able to uh, evaluate separately from the resurrection miracle itself. And so this is the reaction to Lazarus' resurrection, episode 27 in the last Judean and Prean ministry. And to give you the idea here, it starts with verse 45 and goes down through verse 54, uh, but it's not long after that that um, you'll note uh, verse 55. Look at the very next verse. Uh, the Passover of the Jews was near. Now, you know what Passover that is, right? That's not just any old Passover. He's already had four Passovers in his earthly ministry. This is the Passover, the crucifixion Passover, the, uh, the, the, the big day. <laughs> That's how close we are, okay? We're that close as far as John's gospel is concerned. Uh, there are some additional details that we're going to get mainly out of Luke. And so we're going to spend a few episodes coming up here out of Luke. But we really are. We are approaching the cross. We are in the final three months of, of the life of Jesus Christ. So that kind of gives you an idea where 288 lessons or however many lessons we are into. Is this 288 today? Into the Life of Christ series. So um, there is light at the end of the tunnel as far as that goes. All right. John 11:45. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. That's the good news. <laughs> but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So there's two reactions. There's a faith reaction and there's the, uh, the opposite, the anti-faith, the disbelieving action, the traitorous action. And uh, ultimately, what's interesting is in verses 47 through 54, the one that we have amplified is not the faith uh, reaction. Basically, we know everything there is to know about that. There were many that believed. Uh, but the rest of this episode is focused on the adversary, focused on his minions, focused on the desire now to put him to death, something that they will succeed in here very quickly at the next Passover. So that's where we are. Uh, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer, making sure that we are filled with the Spirit. We are dressed uh, suitably, appropriately, in our priestly garments, cleansed and ready for worship. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And once again, we come before you. Uh, we've got no business being here in our own worthiness, in our own, what well, we've earned and deserved, Father. But uh, because you've placed us in your son you've uh, freely bestowed upon us all things 
Father, we uh, we have every right to be here because it's it's his worthiness, Father, that that you look upon. You no longer see us as the vile sinners we are, but you see your beloved son with whom you're well pleased. And Father, on, on that basis, we're delighted to come together today one more time to study, to show ourselves approved, to learn just a little bit more uh, than we knew yesterday, Father, so that today we can live our lives for for his glory and for his sake. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Well, quite simply, there's five things I want to give you. The first of which is the summary statement. Many believed, but some betrayed. Many believed, but some betrayed. And those are the adjectives that are at, that are at play here. Many. We don't know how many, but the word is many. So, you know, do your own estimate. It, you know, whatever many means, many means many. And it's more than just a couple, more than a few, uh, more than some. Whatever it is, it's a significant number greater than the uh, the sum, the certain ones. Okay, and the certain ones that come next when it says uh, others or some of them in verse 46, uh, the word there is not few. The word is others or some. T certain ones is ultimately, and it really is open at this point. Uh, are you talking about a crowd that believed on the one hand and then some that rejected on the other hand? Or are the some of them, there's a second way you can read that, some of them could possibly include the believing ones. Okay, the question is, what do you apply them? All right, and and really you can construct it either way in English or in Greek. And uh, I, I think them is better off with respect to uh, the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done. Okay. That's the nominative uh, subject of the sentence. So anyway, verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done. So this is a crowd of, of Jewish people, not just racially Jewish, but practitioners of Judaism. That is, they are very devout. They are observant, religiously observant Jews. That's the distinction. When you find Jews in, uh, in the Gospel of John especially, but in the, in the Gospel record, the term Jews is the observant uh, Jews. Those that are f- followers of their uh, temple uh, ritual and their, and their temple system, you understand. Because okay? they're all Jews, right? Jesus is disciples and you know, they're all Jews racially. But uh, the term that's used here is for observant Jews, as opposed to uh, the non-observant. The the Everyday guy who happens to be racially Jewish because his parents are Jewish, but he doesn't observe, he doesn't practice, he has no interest in things of the Lord, he's not living his life for the Lord, he's, he's entirely secular. Today they have, a, if you go to Israel, you've got observant Jews and you have secular Jews. And it's, it's, an, it's a pretty similar background or, or distinction that you would have here in the New Testament. The Pharisees would call him, of course, a sinner. If you're not observant, then you are a sinner. And that's why when you cast someone from your presence, they are to you like a tax collector or a sinner or a Gentile or a sinner, as it were. So uh, these are the little words we've, we've talked about them before. We'll probably talk about them again because they come up in the scriptures, in the gospel record, you know, and you read, well, sinners, aren't we all sinners? You know, well, yeah, we are. But when the gospel record is using that phrase sinners, in, in the Jewish context, it's referring to the non-observant, non-practicing, don't give two hoots about temple worship kind of uh, Jewish population, secular-minded people. They don't care whether they're ritually clean or unclean, whether they're observing a feast or whether they're, you know, the only time they pay attention to uh, Sabbath is whether or not they're, you know, the, the local store is open or closed kind of a thing, because that's, uh, you know, no, no getting around that. 
Same thing with Jew. Uh, Jew is a, a specific term recognizing the observant uh, follower of temple uh, ritual practices. Now, uh, so and many of them had come to Mary to, to grieve with her, to weep with her. Her brother had died. They were there to show support. They were there to show sympathy and so forth. And they observed what he had done. That's key, of course. Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, the response to apply faith on the basis of what they have observed, either heard or seen and beheld. In this case, for those who reject who he is, they have even fewer excuses than anybody else. Not like anyone has an excuse. We're all without excuse. But they are even more without excuse because they beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten from the Father. And yet rejected his revelation. So many believed, but some betrayed. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And believe me, they were not going there testifying in positive volition about all the, the great wonders of the Lord at that point. They were ratting him out, hoping that the Pharisees would put a stop to what was happening. And that's exactly what happens. And they convened the Sanhedrin to figure out a way to stop it and to stop it immediately. That becomes priority number one. Now, this is a little bit different. This episode features a reversal of the usual proportions. Normally, when we think about the many and the few, it's the other way around. It's the many that are rejecting Christ and going down the road to destruction. And it's the few who actually come to Christ. Narrow is the gate, you understand. Uh, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. See, that's Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I think I quoted it the other day in our... Uh, Jonah series. It came up in one of the other classes and because it wasn't in those notes, it was in these notes. But anyway, here it is again. Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. You know, the road to destruction, that's where the majority of the human race is headed. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. And this is the, the biblical teaching when it comes to the straight and narrow. We've got idioms and expressions and so forth. If you're walking the straight and narrow, sometimes that becomes an expression for being, you know, you're leading a, a moral, ethical kind of life. And technically that's not right because this is a passage that speaks of the entrance to, uh, to life. All right. So that's the normal order. Typically, the majority is not going to be right. Okay. Uh, it's hard for an American, you know, representative republic, democracy, tradition type of person to admit. But most often what Scripture reveals is a majority is going to be wrong. Ten spies said, let's go back to Egypt. Two spies said, uh, God's giving us this land. So, you know, what are we going to do? Take a vote and go with majority rules? Or uh, what about the vote that they held to, uh, to uh, crucify Christ and release Barabbas? See, there's several examples where the, the popular election is not uh, reflective of the will of God. Okay, But this is a reversal, and, and I find that interesting. Uh, it is reversal of the usual, but let's understand that when God is at work, then what's usual is the unusual. Okay, What's normal, the new normal, is miraculous, because God's the one that's at work. And that's the second item here. And, and I'm just going to tie in a couple of scriptures that maybe aren't going to make sense at first. But understand that there is a tremendous work that's taking place here. Beyond the fact that Lazarus is alive again. Okay? God is very specifically at work. This is a time that God the Son is worshiping the Father, thanking Him for the testimony that the Father is giving. And here the point is this. The hand of God is 
in special places at special times through special means is always miraculous. When God's hand is at work, then don't be surprised if uh, the usual way things work gets turned on its head. Don't be amazed if it's swapped around where the majority now are coming to faith in Christ. It's only a, a handful that, that, uh, that reject. See, you ever wonder why those proportions uh, don't seem to play out maybe in, uh, well, some families, but in, in a lot of families, why don't, they, why don't they, why doesn't that work out? See, I grew up as, as one of four. Uh, children, and of course, then you add two parents into the mix, and so there's six in the household. And uh, you would think, okay, well, if if many there are that go there too to the wide path of destruction, and only few find it, well, then uh, you know, as a general rule, uh, we might expect what one or two to get saved. Certainly not three. Clearly, we wouldn't have half get saved if many go to destruction and few find the the gate to to life. So you would think as in a normal practice uh, that you'd have one or two at the most become saved. You wouldn't have three and four. Are you kidding me? Five? No way. Six? Is that right? Six out of six are born again believers in Jesus Christ. And here you understand when God's hand is at work and God's hand is in in a special place at a special time through special means. God is setting apart, sanctifying an entire family, sanctifying a household, placing a, a, uh, a, uh, a fruit, salt and light, a benefit in a community and so forth. See, and that's not, not just, you know, my family or your family. It's, it's, that, it's what he does when his hand is at work. And remember that, that when you come to Christ, his hand is on you and it doesn't lift as soon as you're saved. His hand stays on you. See. And so you're saved and you enter into marriage and you start having children and God's hand is still on you and you're walking on the light and he rewards that. I think we want to pay more attention to the hand of God in special places at special times through special means and and really start to plug ourselves in there and say, you know what? God's at work and thank God that he is because, you know, if I take the time or try to daydream what my life would be like without the hand of God on me. It's a, it's a frightening thing. All right, now here's a couple of passages, and, and again, I'm just going to give them to you. They may not seem like they relate to uh, John 11 in any way, and, and truly they don't, but I think they're helping to describe the principle that I'm describing here. All right, so Second Chronicles chapter 30, and you'll see what I'm talking about here. Second Chronicles 30 in verse 12. <clears throat> and this is during the uh, divided kingdom right before the captivity this is during the reign of uh, Hezekiah in the, uh, in the south the southern kingdom of Judah after the northern kingdom had been swept away and um, some different things here in fact it's a uh, it's a neat opportunity that um, the southern kingdom has to try to give divine viewpoint to whatever remnants there might be, any of the northern kingdom that has escaped the Assyrian captivity and any any uh, believers that want to get right with their relationship with the Lord and actually come down to the south, take up residency in, in uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, don't be like your fathers and your brothers and so forth. It's, it's a tremendous 
missionary work on behalf from the southern kingdom on behalf of the northern kingdom there. Anyway, that's the context. And so in, in chapter 10, we're told, or chapter, uh, verse 10, we're told, So the couriers passed from city to city through uh, the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, and they laughed them to uh, scorn and, to, and mocked them. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So there was some kind of fruit. See, and if it's minimal or whatever it is, are you willing to be laughed at? Are you willing to be derided? Are you willing to suffer that kind of indignity and shame and whatever if it's going to bear fruit and these, this remnant's going to actually come to truth? I think there's a principle there. But then we get to, on this too, by the way, is uh, one of the passages you can point to whenever some morons trying to tell you about the lost tribes of Israel or some you know insane thing like that. Okay, There's no lost tribes of Israel. There's just lost Gentiles trying to figure out what, what you know, what those lost tribes are all about. Now, verse 12. The hand of God was also on Judah. This was in a special place at a special time through special means. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. God's hand was at work here and it provided in this instance, it provided a tremendous Unity of spirit, unity of purpose, like what we can expect in the church age when we're uh, intent on one purpose, united in spirit in our, in our prayer focus with one another, in our, in our uh, priesthood in Christ. But here's an example of it in the Old Testament and in a political application where a nation rallies under positive volition in their spiritual leader. Hezekiah was a good king. And Hezekiah had divine viewpoint. Hezekiah was walking in the light. And that's a blessing for his population. And so the princes, the tribal leaders, the elders, um, you know, the hand of God was on them to give them that one heart. Think how special that is. We're, we're, I believe we are seeing that right here in our assembly, in, our, in, modern, in these times. Uh, the whole construction project, the whole, everything has been filled with such like-mindedness with either unanimous notes or, or nearly unanimous votes every step of the way. See? I don't know if you've gone past there or not. The building's taking shape. I'm getting some more pictures. And Lee Smith took some pictures last night. But when God's hand is at work, there is just such an amazing testimony. And so what normal isn't normal anymore. What's usual might be upside down. And what we used to think of was be maybe impossible now becomes the new normal because God's at work. God's doing it. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to, uh, to behold. Another passage maybe that might touch on this is uh, 1 Peter 5, 6. Again, neither the Chronicles passage or the Peter passage, neither of those has a lick of anything to do with John chapter 11. But they are pro- providing us with some um, references pertaining to at least this principle here. And so uh, I think it's, um, beneficial to observe them. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Do we overlook that? Do we gloss over that first half of verse 6 because we're so anxious to get to the second half of verse 6? Yeah, yeah, finish the verse, Pastor. We want to hear, He will exalt you at the proper time. You know, well, let's not rush through the first half because that second half isn't possible without the first half. And that second half isn't really the point. This chapter is a chapter on humility. And so the first half is the point. 
And that's the one we need to be focused on. Exalting at the proper time, guess what? That might be glory. That might not be here on this earth. Probably not. So um, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. When you know you're in God's hand, there's nothing better. You want to be in God's hand. You want to be under his hand. There's, uh, and of course, <laughs> if you're not under his hand for blessing, then you're still under his hand, aren't you? Because what does the hand become at that point? It becomes the hand of discipline. That's right. It becomes the hand of correction. See, isn't that amazing? All right. So that's what we have here. Many believe, but some betrayed. And it's kind of a backwards pattern. But something, think about how powerful this was. Jesus is approaching his own grave. And he's going to have this opportunity to bring Lazarus out of Lazarus' grave and give the praise and glory to God the Father in that process. And it really wasn't even for him. It wasn't even his test. He was obedient. Oh, yeah, he, he accomplished the work that the Father had for him to do. But when he gives this Thanksgiving prayer here in John 11, he's praising the Father that this whole episode was for the sake of those that were here observing. And uh, he says, I thank you, Father, that... Um, in verse 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you did send me. All right, that's the purpose. And he was praising the Father for it. And the ones that, uh, that believed, uh, we see them uh, in verse 45, believing and, and praise God for it. So that's the whole point to this, uh, to this prayer and to this exercise. Now, Secondly, what happens when uh, the Pharisees get news of what's happening? Well, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. Convened a council. They synagogued a Sanhedrin. Or they convened a council. There's some fun vocabulary in this, but we'll just let it go so we can focus on, on their orientation here. They were saying, what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> they, they get this report about what he's doing. And they get all worked up about what they're doing, see, because clearly they're not serving their own purposes. They've got to stop him, okay? What are we doing? This man is performing many signs, and of course they're not doing any. <laughs> and if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Praise the Lord, <laughs> right? Why stop it? Let it go. Come on, let's, let's help him do even more. Well, that's a problem in their minds, see, it's also not factually true, but they fear it is. Okay, I mean, we know for a fact that he can do miracles and, and there's people that will look right at the miracles and, and respond with hatred. Okay, I mean, it's happening right here. That's how they found out about this stuff going on. So it's not as if every human being on the planet is going to get saved, but that's what they're afraid of. That's what they're terrified of. Oh, my goodness. He's building more followers than them. And bitter enemies, the chief priests and the Pharisees. You want to know how many times in history these guys work together? Never. Never. Except to destroy Jesus Christ. The only common ground they ever found. Let's get some uh, points on this as well. Who are these guys anyway? A coalition of chief priests. And I, I like to hyphenate that. And, and Actually, I, I don't like the term, but it's the best we're going to do. Um, it's, it's, um, it's arch, like archangel, it's archpriest, archierus is the Greek term. And if you have, uh, you know, we don't say one of the chief angels, we call him the archangel, Michael, you know, and these are the archpriests. 
the arch priests, the ruling priests, the chief priests, the, uh, the um, power brokers of the Sadducee party. All right. Remember, the, the priestly powers in the Sanhedrin were the Sadducee party. The Pharisees were their opponents. It'd be like Republicans and Democrats uh, coming to like-minded agreement on something today. What, what would possibly unite them? Hopefully not a mutual hatred for Jesus Christ, but what would it be? What would it take for bitter enemies to put it all aside? All right. Now, they were traditional opponents, and yet they were united together. They found common cause. And we're told that they synagogued to Sanhedrin. It's a, it's a fun play on words. Maybe it doesn't come across very well in the English. But the verb sunagoge. Sunagoge. Ago means to, to lead. And soon you lead together. You assemble together. You gather together. Okay? That's what a synagogue is. It's people gather together. It's a synagogue. Okay? Soon, like synchronize or sympathy or uh, any of our soon uh, prefixes. Okay? In Ago, to lead or to gather. So they're gathering together. They're synagoguing. They're synagoguing. But they're not going to the synagogue to study the Bible. They're not going to the synagogue to worship Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Instead, they're synagoguing a Sanhedrin, a council. A Sanhedrin. And, and that's another interesting vocabulary term as well. I'm not going to provide a very developed study on this because we've, we've discussed them in the past and the, uh, the Grace Notes uh, resources on the Sanhedrin, on the Sadducees, on the Pharisees uh, are, are the best you're going to find. So just clip those off of Grace Notes and, and research that yourself. You'll also find some things on, on the Essenes and some of the other um, political uh, groups of the day. But just remember, the Sadducees are the priestly line. The Pharisees are the non-priestly line, but they had a better handle on the scriptures. Okay, if if, I, if you and I were alive back then, with our literal hermeneutic, with our reverence for what God revealed, we would be Pharisees, because we would believe that God inspired the scriptures. That that uh, we'd have a literal hermeneutic. We would uh, accept the resurrection. Sadducees didn't accept the resurrection. Okay, Pharisees did. Uh, we would be very much in line with Pharisee theology, if uh, if you and I were transported in time back to uh, back to this day and age. All right, traditional opponents. Now, the Sanhedrin, when it says they convened a council, there's two things, two ways you can take this. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. And there's no article there. It doesn't, it's not the council, it's a council. And so it's a little bit awkward to say that they, they called into session the entire 71-member Sanhedrin. Although 9 out of 10 commentaries act as if that's what's going on here. Uh, I think without the definite article, I have a hard time uh, taking the Sunedrion vocabulary, verse 47, without the, and uh, making it the entire 71-member body. Uh, I think it could have been simply a subcommittee that they gathered together. And we have that, actually. They could put together an ad hoc Sanhedrin. They could put together a, a panel, and uh, oftentimes they uh, consisted of 23 members, was a significant number, or any other odd number that, that uh, wasn't going to result in a stalemate. 
Um, sometimes they would start with 23 and then they would add two by two by two by two until either they came to a, a uh, resolution or until they reached the full 71. But an ad hoc Sanhedrin could be convened for particular judicial purposes or the entire Sanhedrin, notice the capital S, the Sanhedrin, would convene for major decisions. Okay, Now, there was only one Sanhedrin, and yet there were several at the same time. Because every city, if it had a significant Jewish population, would have a council. They would have a Jewish council. They would have elders and priests and Pharisees and whoever uh, to handle local disputes, to handle local religious decisions, Sabbath rulings, uh, kosher uh, decisions, and things like that. Uh, but this one was considered the Supreme Court. This was the highest of all Sanhedrins and all of all of uh, the Jewish population around the world was considered the, the Jerusalem Sanhedrin was the number one. Consisted of 71. 70 plus the high priest himself was the 71st, uh, the president of the uh, of the Sanhedrin. The Great Sanhedrin. Point C. Then, the Great Sanhedrin was the supreme Jewish court in Jerusalem. Basically. There was no Jewish authority that would overturn anything that the great Sanhedrin decided. The only time their sovereignty was disputed was when Rome overruled and, and set aside whatever it is they were trying to do. The Roman Empire permitted them to rule over religious matters, but they could not legally put anyone to death. I just remembered something I was going to read. So if I start Libronics now, then uh, whenever that finishes loading, I can actually read it to you. Okay. Um, so we understand what the Sanhedrin is. Okay. Remember, at this time, Israel, the Jewish people, are under Roman dominion. They do not have their own political freedom. Uh, for a time, for a long time, they were under uh, the Roman dominion, but... With a puppet king, Herod was allowed to have his own kingdom there, and, and Herod the Great was the king of the Jews. He was king over all Judea, um, even though he was Edomite, not Jewish. Uh, he was the king of the Jews, as far as the Romans were concerned. After Herod died, then it was broken up into four parts, the Tetrarchy. So you have Herod the Tetrarch, and you've got three other Tetrarchs. Um, and then later on, even the Tetrarchy was done away with. Uh, a couple of the possessions were still, like Galilee was still, belonged to a Herod, but uh, Judea is no longer a, 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 a kingdom. It's now specifically a senatorial province, and it has a governor now at this point. All right. And by the time of Jesus Christ, that's where we are. And the governor, of course, is, is Pontius Pilate. We'll see uh, some of the history on that here in a moment. But Rome was very uh, flexible in some ways. Hard as iron and wouldn't be flexible in other ways. Wait till you read our monthly uh, newsletter. You'll hear about flexibility and, and inflexibility that was rome rome was hard as iron if you gave it trouble it would crush you in a heartbeat but if you didn't stir up trouble and if you paid your annual tribute then rome was was cool just do whatever you want to do just don't rebel don't cause trouble and pay your tribute say it's all you had to do and so uh, under the various governors, and well, first under Herod, but then under the various governors and so forth, when, when Israel was pacified and not rebellious and not, not uh, waylaying uh, you know, Roman messengers and couriers and whatnot, then, then things were fine until they rebelled, and then Rome was devastating, absolutely devastating, see. And so they permitted the Sanhedrin, they encouraged the Sanhedrin. 
They loved letting the Jews take care of their own problems. See, because if you work it out among yourselves, then you don't bother us with it, right? Okay? It's almost like parenting. Now, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. Let me stop that. If... Um, so the Roman Empire permitted them to rule over religious matters, permitted them, even assisted them in some ways. They would interfere occasionally if they figured out that the high priest was getting a little too you know, big for his britches. They removed him and put in another high priest. Okay? Or they removed him. Put in, there were some years, there were stretches where they could go through high priests you know, like that. And they were all Roman appointments. Uh, they... Most of them were Jewish. I think maybe they are all Jewish. Uh, most of them were even Levitical. Okay. Obviously, the Pharisees are starting to take problems here, saying, you know, you guys aren't legitimate high priests. You're not descendants of Aaron. You have no entitlement to this position. It's only the Romans putting you in this position. So the Pharisees had a lot of problems with the Sadducees, with the high priests, with the so forth. Now, at this point, though, Caiaphas, who we see here, Caiaphas is introduced in verse 49. Caiaphas is almost, again, it's an exception to the rule. Because after the, a number of years where high priests were coming and going like, you know, I don't know how to describe it. They were just coming and going, including his own father-in-law was one of them that was deposed also. Uh, Caiaphas stuck. He got his spot and he knew he could make Rome happy. And he, he was in his spot from 1880 to 3780. He had nearly 20 years in this, in this position. And uh, so he was the he was the high priest during our Lord's entire ministry, during his crucifixion, at his trial and uh, and all of that. So the Roman Empire permitted them to rule over religious matters, but they could not legally put anyone to death. That was one thing they withheld. They would not allow uh, the Sanhedrin to execute a death penalty. Okay. now that's seen uh, seen very clearly in the scriptures. That's why when they convict him, they have to take him to Pilate and insist that Pilate sentence the, the crucifixion. They were not permitted to do so. Uh, the, the Talmud actually describes why they lost that privilege. I think they lost it because they were abusing it, and Rome took it away from them. Previously, they'd, they had four places when they could issue capital punishment. They could stone. They, could, uh, they couldn't crucify. He had to be a Roman to, to issue crucifixion. But they could stone heretics. They could stone if there was blasphemy in the temple. The Romans didn't mind if the Sanhedrin went ahead and just executed a, a blasphemer there in the temple. Um, so previously to our Lord's ministry, they had that. But I think it's a neat quirk of, of God the Father controlling things is that he revoked the Sanhedrin's permission to execute the death penalty before Jesus started his earthly ministry. And here now are his priestly opponents trying to put him to death. And uh, they're going to need to bring the Romans in on the... Uh, on the the dirty deed here. All right. Um, Caiaphas, point three then. Caiaphas became an unwitting, unwitting prophetic voice. He's going to give a tremendous doctrinal dissertation here, and he's an unbeliever. He uh, <laughs> He's not even aware of what he's saying. And yet he's speaking truth. And I, and I love this. This is the Father in his wisdom. This is his, his, uh, his glory to do this. He says, I, I will cause the wrath of man to glorify my name. And here he's taking the words, uh, the diabolical words, satanic words of an evil man 
and highlighting the fact that, you know what, they're true. They're more true than he will he knows or will ever know. So let's read them and then we'll get some detail. All right. Notice something with me, though. Uh, the Pharisees convened a council. We're saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And here's what's even worse. I didn't get to this part yet. Um, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Oh, my goodness. That's what can't be tolerated. If we let this go on, this is going to upset the Romans. And the Romans are going to come. And they're going to fire us. Oh, and also our nation's going to get destroyed. That's bad too. Right? Did you pick up on that? The order on that? They, the Romans will come and take away both our place, our prestige, our authority, our position in the Sanhedrin, and our nation. <laughs> you know? Can you imagine? You know, it'd be terrible if... Uh, if uh, you know, if our nation was destroyed or whatever, if a, if a, a terrorist uh, got a nuclear device into Austin and, and destroyed this entire city, you know, and, and if I was minded like these guys, I would bewail that as saying, oh my goodness, that's unthinkable. I would, I would lose my job at Austin Bible Church. And, and oh yeah, and 600,000 people would die. <laughs> well, what am I stressing? What comes first to my mind, you know? If you're satanically focused, me. Everything's about me. Me, 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 me. I will, I will, I will, I will. If you're satanically focused, everything, the universe revolves around you. And so that's why this Jesus guy has to be done away with. If we don't stop him, what are we doing? We've got to stop him. If we don't, the Romans are going to take away our place. Oh, yeah, and our nation's going to be destroyed. Isn't that amazing? You know, the nation that cannot be destroyed. <laughs> because it's the covenant nation. It's the eternal nation. No, they don't have a clue about any of that. All right. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. <laughs> you blithering idiots. Now, these are some of the smartest scholars, most prideful legend has you know a number of these guys that had memorized the entire Torah. And he calls them idiots. You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient, profitable, for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. He says, you guys, this is simple. It's better if one guy, if we sacrifice one guy, we all get to live. That's a smart thing to do. Let's just kill the guy and we're, we're, we're off the hook. We're saved. If we kill him, we're saved. See? But think about it. What he's saying is, is if, if one guy dies, if this one guy dies, we're saved. Okay? Not from the wrath of Rome, but from the slave market of sin. See? It is God's ultimate wisdom for one man to die on behalf of all of us. We all became sinners because one man sinned, right? We're all in Adam. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. So also through one man, we have life. He's communicating the truth here. And John gets to relate that. And he's writing this gospel decades later. Um, 
which is why he's kind of dating himself here when he says, you know, Caiaphas was the high priest that year, because um, this is decades later. Um, in verse 51, John's commentary now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You know, that the Jewish people will have a Savior, the Gentiles will have a Savior, we'll have one body in Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile. It's a great thing that this one man dies. All right. So Caiaphas became an unwitting, unwitting prophetic voice. Interesting, this was also another legend that the Jews believed that the, if a legitimate high priest who was wearing the ephod, who was functioning in office, could actually prophesy, could speak ex cathedra, could communicate the things of the Lord directly from the throne of God. That was a, a belief. It wasn't a very accurate belief in most of the cases when the high priest was an unbeliever or was a pagan or, or what have you, and the, the priesthood was totally abased. Um, but ironically enough, in this case, their uh, assumption turned out to be, uh, to be accurate. God was speaking through him, like he speaks you know, through other donkeys on occasion. That's uh, what we see happening here. Now, good information on Caiaphas. If you want to study Joseph Caiaphas, Joseph is his first name, Caiaphas. Um, we can go to Josephus and his Antiquities of the Jews. Actually, in a couple of different places he's featured. We've got great Jewish documentation and Roman documentation for this. And as I mentioned, Grace Notes has a wonderful uh, study on the uh, high priest, on the Sadducees, and particularly this family. This is like um, uh, you know, the Sopranos. This is like organized crime. These guys, um, these guys knew what they were doing. They were good. They make the, the modern-day mafia look like chumps, amateurs. Okay? They had rackets going all over the place. So, if uh, I've succeeded in bringing that up, I have. Then, I bookmarked this, Josephus. All right. This is uh, His Antiquities of the Jews, Volume 18, uh, Chapter 2, Section 2. And without reading Section 1, you might feel like you're a little bit out of context, but I don't want to back up too far. All right. Uh, Caponius. Ever heard of him? Probably not. All right. He had been a governor. Um, as Caponius, who we told you was sent along with Cyrenius, was exercising his office of procurator and governing Judea, the following accidents happened. Uh, as the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what we call Passover, it was customary for the priests to open the temple gates just after midnight. When, therefore, those gates were first opened, some of the Samaritans came privately into Jerusalem and threw about dead men's bodies in the cloisters, on which account the Jews afterward excluded them out of the temple, which they had not used to do at such festivals. And on other accounts, also, they watched the temple more carefully than they had formerly done. Okay, so there's an ugly episode. And as I said, in, in previous times, when something vicious like that was done in the temple, they would, they would stone them. They would just take action, and, and Rome tended to validate their uh, use of capital punishment there. A little after which accident, uh, Caponius returned to Rome, and Marcus Ambivius, Marcus Ambivius, 
came to be his successor in that government, under whom Salome, the sister of King Herod, died and left to Julia, uh, that was Caesar's wife, uh, Jamnia and all its toparchy in Phasaelus in the plain in Archelaus, where is a great plantation of palm trees and their fruit is excellent in its king. This is why, again, part of the tetrarchy uh, broke down. Because some of it was bequeathed to Caesar in the in the wills of these of these different folks, in which case Herod's sister, instead of instead of these Jewish cities remaining Jewish cities and, and becoming a part of, you know, another tetrarchy or another united kingdom of Judea, they were given away and became personal uh, estates of, uh, of Caesar. So after him came Aeneas uh, Rufus, under whom died Caesar the second emperor of the Romans. We would think of him as the first emperor of the Romans, but um, that's because of our modern historical understanding. As far as Josephus was concerned, Julius was the first emperor, and Augustus was the second. So um, it was during the uh, governorship of Aeneas Rufus that Caesar Augustus dies, the second emperor of the Romans, the duration of whose reign was 57 years, besides the six months and two days uh, of which time Antonius ruled together with him for 14 years. You know, Mark Anthony and the, the love deal with Cleopatra and all that. Uh, so the duration of his life was 77 years. Upon whose death Tiberius Nero, his wife, Julius' son, succeeded. He was now the third emperor, and he sent Valerius Gratus to be procurator of Judea and to succeed Annius Rufus. Okay, so if you're following all this... <laughs> There is governor after governor after governor after governor, and they're not lasting very long. And along with that is coming high priest after high priest after high priest after high priest, and they're not lasting very long. There's no consistency and there's no uh, stability in, uh, in this entire region. That's, at least that's how I summarize it. So now we're up to Aeneas Rufus is the governor. This man deprived Annas, or Ananus, Latin spelling, of the high priesthood. Now that's the father-in-law of the Caiaphas that we're seeing today in John chapter 11. All right. And he's also featured in, in one of the trials of Jesus because uh, he's going to try him before Caiaphas tries him and they're going to work together on their, on their two different trials. So this man deprived Ananus of the high priesthood and appointed Ishmael, the son of Fabi, to be the high priest. He also deprived him in a little time and ordained Eleazar, the son of Ananus, who had been high priest before to be the high priest, which office, when he held it for a year, Gratus deprived him of it and gave the high priesthood to Simon, the son of Camithus. So it's high prestige to be high priest, right? Well, they've had four in this one year. Um, and when he had possessed the dignity no longer than a year, Joseph Caiaphas was made his successor. That's who we see here now in John chapter 11. Same Caiaphas. That's called Caiaphas in John 11. He's called Joseph Caiaphas in uh, Josephus's record here. So Joseph Caiaphas was made his successor. When Gratus had done all those things, he went back to Rome after he had tarried in Judea 11 years. Pretty long time for any of these governors. And then after he tarried in Judea 11 years, when Pontius Pilate came as his successor. All right. So this is the stage now being set. Caiaphas actually has more time on the ground than, than Pilate at this point in his office as high priest. And of course, he doesn't want to rock that boat. Because, uh, you know, he's got Pilate now. Pilate is not the governor who appointed him. Okay. So, you know, maybe you've had a, a situation where you're, you're now working for a boss, but he's not the boss that hired you. 
<laughs> and he replaced the boss that hired you, and he may not be happy with things that his previous guy had done, and part of that unhappiness might be getting rid of you, you know, or something of that nature. So anyway, this is all the, the politics that's involved in uh, Caiaphas here in this uh, in this episode. All right. Anyway, that's the... Uh, I'll stop there because it goes on to talk about Herod and other areas of Galilee rather than Judea. So we can let that go. Josephus, by the way, is extremely reliable, very accurate in his historical records. Uh, in the places where he's a little bit more obsequious to the Romans, we, we can identify that for what it is. He, he knew who paid his check and who was financing his histories. Uh, but he was, nevertheless, he was very accurate in all that he recorded related to the, to the Jewish people. He was a bit of a traitor in the sense that he was a Pharisee who became a general in the Roman legions and uh, was on the Roman side when Jerusalem fell. Uh, but being a Pharisee, he certainly had the doctrinal background, the biblical background, the historical background to uh, relate Jewish things to a Roman audience. He says, y'all don't know nothing. Yeah, yeah that's, that's straight from the Greek. Um, <laughs> and it's powerful. It's forceful. In English, we can't do that. In English, a double negative cancels itself and becomes a, a positive statement. In Greek, a double negative or a triple negative or a quadruple negative, you can just keep piling them on, and all they do is intensify, 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 makes it more and more and more emphatic. And so when he says here, humes, y'all, you plural. And that's not necessary because oidata means y'all, but you have the pronoun there anyway. Y'all don't know not one thing, uden. And so you've got the uh, really a triple negative if you include the one in, intrinsic to uden. Communicate strongly the prideful superiority of Caiaphas because clearly he knows everything. <laughs> He's the smartest guy in the room. Just let them tell you. Know-it-alls. They think of others as know-nothings. Ever encountered a know-it-all? Ever worked for a know-it-all? Married to a know-it-all? Uh, <laughs> careful. Attend a church where the pastor's a know-it-all? All right. Know-it-alls are very proud of themselves, very full of themselves. Isn't it interesting? Thinking of others as know-nothings. Well, he is the high priest after all. <laughs> Y'all don't know nothing. He says, simple. This is easy. We just kill him. Just kill him. How tough can that be? Right? Oh, of course, there's a Bible verse that says, Thou shalt not murder. <laughs> but, think about it. Is it really all that bad? Because look at the good that's going to come about. Okay? And okay, it might be bad a little bit for one guy, but it's going to be so much good, it'll be so much better, it's more expedient, it's more profitable for the many, meaning us. <laughs> right? We are going to be a lot better when he dies. And this is the satanic wisdom 
that sits underneath every single sin you and I ever accomplish. God's word says, thou shalt not. And we find reasons why it's not so bad. And in fact, it's even beneficial in some ways. It's actually preferable in some other ways. I can rationalize a lot. I can say, you know what? You know, yeah, okay, lying is wrong, but I don't want to hurt their feelings. And, and then really, uh, this is, I'm, I'm just thinking about them. Normally not. Normally lying scum is thinking about themselves. Okay? But they find ways to rationalize it. You understand? It's expedient. It's profitable. Caiaphas is communicating what James 3.15 describes is earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. The wisdom from below is earthly, natural, demonic. And it's grounded on expediency. Literally, profitability to be advantageous to be profitable and as I'm running out of time I really wanted to get through this because we have we weren't going to be back next week um, no we can't we got six minutes the um, earthly natural demonic wisdom James 3.15. There's two kinds of wisdom. There's God's wisdom, which is from above, which is pure, peaceable. Um, And then there's the earthly wisdom, in which there is all kinds of jealousy, in which there's all kinds of divisiveness. And so when you hear something, and you just ask yourself, is this peaceable and pure, or is it full of jealousy and self-promotion and division? And it's usually not tough to figure out. If, you, if you're discerning it all and you have divine viewpoint and you're evaluating it with, with a divine viewpoint perspective and you make it a matter of prayer, say, Father, open my eyes to this. What am I looking at? Is this heavenly wisdom? Is this earthly wisdom? What, what is this I'm looking at? And it's not going to be difficult. You will be discerning. God will, you're not asking, he's not going to give you a snake when you're asking him for a fish. Now, the rest of these scriptures, sum pharaoh is a vocabulary, sum pharaoh, Pharaoh meaning to bear or to carry and then sum uh, together with. And if you're going to carry something together, then that means it's profitable. You have an advantage there in, 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 uh, in that. It's used 15 times in the New Testament. Number 4851 is the strongest number for sum Pharaoh. And it's used in several places. We're familiar with Matthew 5, 29 and 30 uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it is better to pluck your eye out and, uh, and uh, enter into life, see, than... Uh, to be cast into hell, and uh, there's other. A lot of times, it's translated better, 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 better. And why is something better? Because it's more profitable. It's advantageous. It's it's good for you. See, and that's what they're focused on here. What's good for us? What's good for us? Uh, Matthew 18:6. It's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than it would be to cause a little one to stumble. It's more profitable. At least through, and we studied that not too long ago, at least through dying the sinner to death, you can edify uh, by warning other believers uh, not to follow your example of divine discipline. And so even in your own sinner to death, you at least can have that kind of edifying, which is better than you would have if you were causing one of these little ones to stumble. So it's, it's better, more profitable, advantageous for you to have the millstone tied around your neck. Our passage here in John 11:50. Notice uh, very quickly on the heels of this another uh, use of 
this term in the Gospel of John comes in John 16:7, and Jesus is going to use it when he's describing to his disciples. Uh, the Pharisees think it's better if Jesus dies, and Jesus agrees. He says, you know what, it's better if I die, because I get to send you the Holy Spirit. It is to your advantage that I go away, he says in John chapter 16. So again, I think it's, it's a testimony to the unwitting statements that, that uh, the high priest is making here. Saying, you know what, it's advantageous that we killed this guy. See, Jesus agrees. In John 16, 7, he says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And what a blessing that we get to function in the church age with the permanent dwelling of God the Holy Spirit and with Jesus Christ seated in session at the right hand of God the Father, ever living to make intercession for the saints. We have an advocate with, with God the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What an advantage. Our stewardship has everything over and above what any previous stewardship has ever had. Acts 20.20, 20, Paul says, I have not shrunk from declaring to you all things that are profitable from the Word of God. Not popular, profitable. Some of what's profitable isn't very popular, but it's better that you learn it. It's better that you, uh, that you embrace God's Word, even if you don't like it. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, 10.23, 12.7 are all uses of sum pharaoh in, in the sense of better or profitability. And uh, likewise, it's coming up in 2 Corinthians 8.10 and 12.1. But I'm running out of time. You can pursue your own sum pharaoh study. I really want to get points 4 and 5 here. Like I said, it's not enough to save for a whole second session. And it'd be two weeks from now anyway. Um, oh, D. The Apostle John understood Caiaphas's message as being divinely inspired, and I agree with that. It's recorded here in verses 51 and 52. That when Caiaphas was speaking, it was a divine utterance. God was allowing the truth to come from the mouth of a liar. The Apostle John understood Caiaphas's message as being divinely inspired. It is beneficial for one man to die on behalf of his country. In fact, the whole world. He's dying on behalf of the whole world. Point four. The murderous plots were previously strategic. At this point, they become tactical. At this point, they become tactical. John 11:53. It says, "From this day forward, from that day on, they planned together to kill him." Well, it didn't start here. They've been wanting him dead for some time. You can go back to John 5, where you see it in verse 16 and 18. You see it in John 7 and verse 1. Last fall in the, in the Feast of Tabernacles, he did not immediately go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And they were all looking for him on day one, and he wasn't there. And then he shows up you know, midway through the week and uh, started doing some teaching there in John chapter 7. And they couldn't believe it. Is this the guy that they want dead? Okay. They've, been, they've been wanting him dead. And I think it's, what we see here is the difference between strategic planning and tactical planning. Okay, strategic planning and tactical planning. It's been the strategy of the United States of America that we would like to see the Iranian mullahs overthrown. That's been a strategy since Clinton's days in, in the Oval Office. All right. As a strategy, we, America would like to see the Iranian government with a different government. But it's never we've never executed tactical planning to make that happen. So you go from strategic thinking to tactical thinking. And likewise here too. They previously um, had a strategic 
intention that this guy has to die. Now it's tactical. Now it's, all right, he has to die, and it's going to happen. How do we get it to happen? How, what, where, when? We already know the why. Um, they have to f- determine the, the means and the uh, way that it's going to happen. And so what does Jesus do? They're going tactical. He's going tactical. <laughs> Point five. Jesus engaged his own tactical maneuvers in order to remain alive until the Father's appointed day for his death. We read this in verse 54. Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. He stopped publishing his itinerary. He stopped uh, sending disciples into villages and announcing uh, the Savior's coming, the Savior's coming. He started walking more covertly, started to undertake some... uh, you know, some cloak and dagger, some uh, espionage tactics, some, uh, you know, some James Bond. Well, no, not James Bond. James Bond told everybody who he was everywhere he went, right? <laughs> now, Jesus isn't going to do that. He's going to start being circumspect. He's going to have wise. Boy, we walk with wisdom. We want to have uh, to be shrewd as serpents and harmless as doves. And I think this is a wonderful application. You know, if you're going to do... Missionary work in hostile locations, you've got to be smart about what you're doing. If you're going into a place where uh, they, they have a different way of doing things, you've got to know what you're doing. You've got to know if there's, a, if there's a customs agent that's looking for a bribe, you've got to know what you're doing. You're going to pay the bribe and, and, and move on and, and, and continue your mission? Or are you going to be all snooty and haughty and American about it and say, oh, no, no, well, I would never pay a bribe. That's illegal. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Know what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're doing it and where you are. Do you want to get Bibles into this place or not? Do you want to have missionary work here or what? See, and you get some corrupt agent that wants what amounts to 10 bucks American anyway. Who cares? (laughs) Okay, just have some perspective on certain things. Okay. Wow, that's a whole other topic, isn't it? Uh, there's a there's a doctrinal principle, and you learn it when you study Rahab and the spies. There is a principle for uh, sanctified uh, deceit when it comes to certain things. They, they were lying through their teeth. Rahab was lying, and and, and uh, God puts her in Hebrews 11, the Hall of Fame. And uh, there's some some truth when it comes to that. So Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from uh, there to the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. And so he's going to, he's not afraid to die, but he knows he has to stay alive until the the right day, until the right hour, until the right moment. Being obedient to his father. All right, well, that gets us through the, uh, the episode then. So next week off, we'll come back in two weeks and return back to the uh, Gospel of Luke, actually, for episode number 28. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for this day. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, Father, teach us what we need to apply here in these, in these various applications. Uh, thank you for the examples that are set, for the blessings we have to study to show ourselves approved. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.